0: Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. My name's Andy Mitten, and this episode of United We Stand is sponsored by Bet on Brazil. Visit betonbrazil.com for the very latest odds and offers. I'm delighted to be joined by our guest today, Rob Beasley. Rob was a longtime journalist at the Sun newspaper, and he's written a book, Jose Mourinho Up Close and Personal, published by Michael O'Mara. Hello, Rob. Thanks for joining us. Hi,
1: Andy. How are you doing? You okay?
0: Yeah. And. I've got some questions from United We Stand readers uh, to you. I wanted to ask you about your book, about your relationship with Jose Mourinho. Um, Why did you do the book, first of all? Well, you know what, Andy... It, it was fairly well known that i was very close to him whenever i did an interview
1: for the news of the world or the sun it always just said by the man who knows Mourinho best and all that sort of thing so it's a fairly open secret that we were pretty close and you uh, didn't have to be einstein or a rocket scientist to to know that um, i got a lot of good chelsea stories and um, guess or even know who the source was so, but I got sick of people coming up to me and saying, Oh, your mate Mourinho, what a miserable so and so, what a horrible so, I don't like him, I don't this, that. I'm going, Well, when did you meet him? When did you see him? I said, Oh, on the telly, you see him on the telly, he's doing before a match, he's always trying to wind people up, he's always miserable, he's always there. After a match, he's always moaning about referees, and you see him on the touchline and all that. And you go, You know what, you don't, that's part of him, of course it is, that's part of his nature, but it's not the full picture of the real man. Uh, and the real manager, he's not like that twenty four seven. Obviously not. So I just thought I finished at the Sun. I did uh, thirty years on Fleet Street, uh, twenty two years with first the News of the World and then the Sun. And you go, okay, I've I've had a nice payoff. I've got a nice pension. Am I going to just uh, grow old disgracefully? Or shall I do something a little bit meaningful? And after two weeks of trying to grow old disgracefully and just indulging myself and doing what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, which was great fun, I thought, you know what, this is not very meaningful and not really deeply satisfying, so I need to have some sort of focus. I can't just finish and shut off and just disappear from the world. So I thought, like many people, you go, you know what, I thought for years one day I might write a book, I might write a book, lots of people think it. And I thought, well, here's my chance. I've thought about it often enough. And one thing that somebody told me, and I can't remember who, when or where, but they said, if you're going to write a book, write it about what you know. Don't try and invent something. Try Just write from your own personal experience. So I thought, what do I know? Well, I know journalism. I know myself. Uh, but is anybody interested in a book about journalism? Is anybody really interested in a book about Robert Beasley? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think so. So I thought, well, oh, Mourinho is this Marmite character so many people dislike him just from seeing him across the, the media. So I thought, I could actually do a pretty good book on Mourinho because I spent 12 years with him, working closely with uh, alongside him and then closely with him. So I think if anybody's going to write a book about Mourinho, I could do a really good one. like If, if you like a fly-on-the-wall documentary, but in words rather than in, in film. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to have a go at it. Uh, and uh, I made all the, the mistakes you make with a book. I wrote it first and then tried to get a deal. Instead of what you should do, is trying to get a deal first and then get the advance, so you're being paid while you're writing it. I wrote virtually the whole book and then tried to sell it. So if nobody had picked it up, I would have uh, I'd have wasted three months of my life writing a book that nobody was interested in. But I got a good deal, and the primary push for me to to sign with Michael O'Mara books was that they were going to try and get it out in time for the new season or as close to the new football season as possible, which I thought was important because I had this deep down feeling that although I'd finished the book, to all intents and purposes, before Jose got the Manchester United job, uh, I was pretty sure uh, he was a, a candidate for that and was very keen on the job so I thought we needed to get it out as soon as possible to, to cash in with him arriving at Old Trafford uh, and uh, getting in on all the, the press and PR hullabaloo about Mourinho at, uh, at the Theatre of Dreams and so it was perfect, they, they did it, they crashed their systems to get it out in, in time and it was out last week. He's doing very well so far. So that's the reason, really. I'd always fancied writing a book. I didn't think anybody would want to read one too much about me, but I thought people were clearly fascinated by Mourinho, and this was an opportunity to say, he's not as bad as you think, guys. He's not as bad as you think. He's, he's actually a brilliant manager, but more important than that, he's a great bloke. And here are some anecdotes I shared with him over 12 years.
0: Did you tell him you were doing the book?
1: No, I didn't, and I'll tell you why. Um... There's three ways you can do a book, as you well know, Andy. You can sit with the guy, you can sit with Mourinho, and he tells you his story and you regurgitate in it. And it's his story through his eyes, his perspective. He puts in what he wants, he leaves out what he wants. The other way to do it, which one publisher, one top publisher wanted me to do, was to go around and do a book on Mourinho, the definitive Mourinho. Go and speak to Ike Casillas. Go and speak to Sergio Ramos, Cristiano Ronaldo. Speak to Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba blah-de-blah, blah, blah blah all the people who've worked with him and get their views on him and write a definitive book from that perspective, which is still very good and laudable, but it wasn't something I particularly wanted to do. I, I just had the feeling that I'd spent this 12 years with him. I'd got to know him professionally and personally, and I just thought, you know what? I'm going to write this book from my perspective, through my eyes. It's going to be, as I said before, a fly-on-the-wall thing. These are the, this is what it's like as a manager. This is the way he thinks and works as a manager. This is the way he thinks and works as a man. This is... This is the side of Jose Mourinho you'll, you'll probably never see. Only very few people get to see it. I've seen it. I'm going to write it firsthand. Nobody's going to interfere with what I put in. Nobody's going to tell me keep that out, keep the, uh, put that in. No, don't say it like that. Say it like this. It was completely my view, unedited, unadulterated view of Jose Mourinho from up close and personal. And I thought that was really important. And there's a few people who think, well, why did you put that in? That's a bit near the knuckle. you let him down there or something like that. And I think, well, you can't write a book about a character like Jose Mourinho and, and just put all in the good stuff. Now, 90% of the book is incredibly complimentary to somebody who I think is the greatest manager I've ever worked with uh, and also one of the best blokes I've ever met in my life. So it is, naturally, because I like him and I got on with him and he's a mate, it's complementary in many, many aspects, but you couldn't seriously write a book about Jose and not talk about the dark side as well. His combustible nature, his confrontational nature. Uh,
0: His—I mean, this is the guy who did after a match at Barça gouged
1: Tito Villanova's eye. Uh, so to write a book that was ignored that side of him, his temperament and his uh, his angry nature at times would have been, to make it laughable, it would have been a a love story, a a broke-back mountain tale, rather than a true and accurate, fair reflection of uh, somebody I've got a great deal of respect for uh, and I, I feel very close to. But if you're doing a book, you've got to be truthful. You've got to say 90% of the time, he's brilliant. He loves a bit of banter. He loves a joke. He's a prankster. He's very generous with his time. He's very generous with his money. He loves his family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All great, great stuff. But there is an edge to him. He has got a side to him. That's what makes him the winner as well. There's a chapter in the book about him moaning to me about the season Chelsea were top for something like a record 274 days. He never won manager of the month a single time. And it drove him crazy. This is a man who's won two Champions League. He won back-to-back titles at Porto, back-to-back titles at Chelsea, back-to-back titles at Inter. He set a record in La Liga against the great Barca and the great Pep Guardiola. Record points, record goals. This is a guy who's achieved unbelievable things in the world of football. And he's got the right hump that he wasn't voted manager of the month and Nigel Pearson got it instead of him. Uh, So I'll put that in the book because it gives you an idea. This is a guy who wants the plaudits for everything. He wants to win everything. It's the old cliche, oh, he played him at table tennis, or he'd want to win. He would want to win. He would want to win. win. And he'd be gutted if he didn't win. So that's part of his nature. That's part of his character. And I've tried to reflect the whole Jose Mourinho. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful in the book.
0: Why did your relationship with him come about? When did you first cross Jose Mourinho? Do you think that... he, he was closer to you because he knew that you were a Chelsea fan. He thought that you could get his message across maybe in a more sympathetic way than someone who, who supported the mighty Manchester United, for example.
1: Well, I think the mighty Chelsea uh, was very, very important because I think we were the same age. We had the same sort of uh, bantery ways. We've got the same sort of swagger. Uh, we we're both a bit cocky. Uh, we were both Chelsea mighty chelsea um so there was all, all that sort of thing and of was course that, i was, I was that, working was on the biggest tabloid newspaper at the time the news yeah. of the world was huge and then the sun was huge as well so he knew if he if he did something through me it would go to the, the biggest possible uh, audience and get make the, the biggest possible impact i think I, I, the book starts funny enough uh, at old trafford in 2004 it was that march game at old trafford were with porto so that's the first introduction of the book. Was that's the first, I, I knew the name Jose Mourinho, but I, you know, he, he wasn't there in my consciousness who he really, really was, until I saw that match. And of course, uh, they needed a point to go through, and they were losing one nil. And then uh, was it Costinha who scored a goal late on? And this guy in the dugout with the black overcoat, on went dancing, skipping, jumping down the line at Old Trafford, down towards the corner flag where all the Porto players were diving on top of each other, uh, and joined in, and I went, oh, that's that Jose Mourinho. Oh, that's him. Yeah, okay. God, he's a character, now I like his style. That's funny, isn't it? Running down Old Trafford, dancing on the touchline uh, and giving it all that. Yeah, I love all that. Wow, brilliant. And the next thing I know, he's winning the, uh, the Champions League with Porto, and... Um, He's been installed as Chelsea manager, my club, since 1967. And uh, I went, oh, wow. So I was there at that first press conference when he announced his, uh, himself as a special one. And uh, it was a bit chaotic. They tried to do it in a room that was far too small to, to hold an event because there was journalists from all around Europe and, and the world there to sort of capture the scene. And it was all a bit too cramped and chaotic. So at the end... As a Sunday journalist back then, we were the last in line. They did the daily newspapers first, the raid, then there's a separate one for the radio, then they do a separate one for TV, so everybody gets their own little bit of Jose Mourinho. We, we were the last knockings, and we'd been standing outside in the freezing cold. So when we got up to the front of the table, there's Jose Mourinho sitting next to Simon Greenberg, who was the head of communications of Chelsea Football Club at the time. And I thought, oh, this is a good opportunity to sort of get yourself noticed. <laughs> they were very calculated and that. So I threw a bit of a strop in front of Mourinho to Simon Greenberg say Simon, this is outrageous, this is pathetic, you couldn't organize this, you know, terrible, terrible. And so I I threw a a very short, controlled paddy in earshot of Jose Mourinho, so he'd go, God, who's that stroppy guy, who's that mouthy git, you know, and and to draw a little bit of attention to myself, so he would recognize me, I'd made an impact in his psyche, and that was was the way I started. So that was a bit of deliberate policy on my part to get myself noticed. Uh, And then... I was one of the guys in a press conference who liked to ask the, the sticky questions, the tricky questions, to, to not to ask about any team news, how so-and-so's hamstring, ask the, ask the meaningful searching questions, and sometimes the, the questions that they, they don't like to answer. So I think that cemented uh, my place in his mind and that. And then I did the Ashley Cole Tapping Up story uh, in his uh, second season, I think it was. It was in 2005. Uh, and they had the secret meeting with Ashley Cole in a hotel in London and I revealed it in the News of the World and it was a Premier League inquiry and I think he was initially fined two hundred
0: grand, which was reduced on appeal to 75000 Chelsea was signed a for- uh, fine of fortune and had the threat of points deductions, um, so it was a big,
1: big story with big, big consequences and that could have gone uh, one of two ways, for instance, Ashley Cole and his agent barely spoke to me ever again. Um, Whereas Jose Mourinho saw it, never mentioned it, but his attitude to me was we, was as if he'd seen that story and thought, okay, this, you know there's a saying about keep your enemies close sort of thing. So he, he saw the potential I'd got to, to break stories and, and make stories. And uh, I, I just, I can't speak for him, but I just got the sensation that he thought, I bet I'd rather have this guy on my side than against me sort of thing so that that, what could have completely fractured and broken a fledgling friendship actually cemented it and brought us closer together in a funny sort of way
0: so how would you communicate then I know he'd he'd send you text messages you had his number do you think a lot of the journalists on the Chelsea beat uh, had his number had that type of access Uh, do you think he trusted you and I I don't think he, he made his number readily available um and I don't think he, he made his email readily available. I know there's
1: one or two other journalists um, in the broadcast side of the business who uh, have got access to him. Um, I, I don't know. I've never asked other journalists if they've got a number for him or anything. But, but he started off. He's not a very good uh, at communicating on the phone. He's much more, uh, in, the, in the early days, he was an SMS text man. And then he developed to, to email. Uh, and so, generally, we communicated by that. I'd ask him about stories. He uh, uh, he'd reply. We'd work on things. So I said, "Do you want to say that in your own name, or do you want to say a, a senior Chelsea source?" Or things? And things. We sorted out how how we do it and what we we publish. Because, uh, as you know, Andy, part of the the important thing about being a sports journalist as opposed to a news journalist. As a sports journalist, you're trying to build a relationship that will last for years and years and years. For instance, I remember my first interview with John Terry was when he was 14, he was a kid, uh, coming through. So I'm still in touch with him now, 20 years later. He could go on and be a manager, he could be a future manager of Chelsea, or a, a top Premier League club, could be a future England manager, and he could still be working in his 60s. So it was in my interest as a as a chief football sports correspondent on the Sun newspaper to keep an ongoing relationship so it's not about oh that's a great story I'm going to write it and forget the consequ- potential consequences of that you have to try and think of a, um, a long ball game and it's a balancing act some stories you go you know what I can afford to leave that one and do a favour here and say don't put that in the paper don't put that in the paper you don't really want to say that because you know in the next two, three weeks, two, three months, two, three years, you are going to get scoop after scoop after scoop after scoop because of the trust and the, and the relationship. So it is a it's a, it's much more different to being a new uh, a newsman on the news of the world or the sun, where they see footballers as as uh, hits. They like, oh,
0: we'll get a great story about David Beckham here. We can get a great story about Ryan Giggs here. The consequences for
1: them not that they see David Beckham the next day in a, in a press conference or in the tunnel after a match and get a rollicking they never see them again they're just victims and they move on to the next victim in sport you have to build a relationship and have to maintain a relationship sure when the story is big enough and serious enough like the Ashley Cole story I looked at that and I thought well I'm a Chelsea fan and there's going to be Chelsea people at Chelsea are going to take a dim view of me writing a, a bad story about my own team Uh, there's going to be people at the club who will be very unhappy that I've written this story and exposed Jose Mourinho, for instance, Ashley Cole. I knew the potential consequences for that. But my my gut feeling of that as a journalist was that this story is of of such significance that you cannot ignore it. And in fact, you are not doing anything wrong. They are the ones who've done something wrong and you're exposing their wrongdoing. So you're actually... um, doing the right thing and exposing the fact that they've done the wrong thing. And when I examined it on that level, you go, this is a no-brainer. I'm doing the story, sod the consequences. Now, there's other stories that come your way and you go, Do you know what? Yes, it'd make a front page lead, but is it worth it? And you have the conversation with them. And if they're adamant that they want in the paper, fine. Most of the time you say, hang on a minute. Let me give you some journalistic advice here. Yes, it'll be a great story for me. Yes, I'll get a big slap on the back and a bottle of champagne from the editor for doing it. But yeah, I don't think it's really in your best interest. If you thought about this, if you thought about that, do you want to leave it? Do you want to sleep on it? Uh, my advice would be to ignore it completely. And you have that. And that builds trust and that builds understanding. And, and So con- con- that's how t- I try to work.
0: Contacts are massively important when you do, I mean, what I do is slightly different to what you did, but... Contacts and trust are absolute paramount if you're going to get yeah. uh, information. and you, you've, got to, you've got to play the long game. It's often better to write knowing more than be, you're, you're allowed to write. Uh, other times you'll get, I did a story last year on Manchester United's youth system and the quality of my sources was so good and I thought, I'm going to get a bit of stick when I write this because yeah. it, was, it was highlighting negatives. And I went on the pre-season tour and I thought, I'm going to get some stick here. And actually, <laughs> a, actually, a lot of people from the club pulled me to one side, made sure nobody was looking, and and their, their comments range from, you've set a cat up among the pigeons, you've put a yeah. bomb there, um, 95% of what you wrote was right, I'm glad you wrote it, something needs doing about it, and sometimes with fans, they're very blinkered, and they only yeah. want to read what they want to believe, and... You're the best writer in the world when you write something they agree with and you're the worst yeah. writer in the world when you write something Absolutely. They, they disagree with. And journalism's changing a lot, isn't it, Rob? You know, you, I, you, your, your point there about seeing people face-to-face, if you've got a good concept, you've got to see these people, you've got to maintain the relationships with them. And I yeah. sometimes see people in offices who I don't think you've got any contacts, who don't have to see the people, and what they do, they, they can put a headline on a story which kills somebody but yeah. they don't face the consequences. you know. For, 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 for you or for I, it's slightly different because you do. But then the people will trust you. They'll give you the number. They'll give you information. And then it's up to the readers whether they trust you.
1: You're absolutely right. There's, there's, um, there's, there's instances where your own newspaper has worked against your best interests, and I used to find that unbelievable. You know, like, you're talking about keyboard warriors on Twitter and things like that. Like, they think they can write anything about you and send it out there and put it out there, foul language and all that sort of thing, and there's no consequences to it. It, it, A lot of it makes me laugh, but there's some people in newspapers who, as you say, sit in offices who think, well, I'm never going to have to see that guy. I did a story once, and um, it was a big story. Uh, and I managed to get a big exclusive uh, interview with a person who was at the centre of the story, who was actually apologising, doing a big apology, and it was a it was a brilliant get. It was he was away on holiday on his on his big boat, and uh, I managed to get hold of him. I managed to talk him into doing this apology about uh, a, a story that he was uh, deeply involved in and that had blown up in his face, all on the record with a guy who very rarely spoke, and I thought I'd done brilliantly. I did the story. I was away on holiday at the time, so I did it while on holes. I didn't see the paper. I got a phone call the next day from the guy saying, what the hell have you done? You stitched me up completely. I said, no, no, I haven't. He says, yes, you have. He said, uh, you've done the apology on one page, and on the other page, so-and-so, 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 has done a big comment piece, taking the mickey out of me, saying, who do you think you're kidding, Mr. So-and-so? You're a scumbag. You're this, that, and the other. And totally unbeknown to me, my own colleagues on that paper had, had, uh, had done a complete and utter hatchet job on the on a, the adjoining page to somebody who was a good long-standing contact of mine, who I talked into doing the story in the paper, and then they poured scorn all over his apology and everything, and I was absolutely incandescent. I just thought I was completely utterly betrayed by these people in the office who just thought, "Oh, this we can have some fun with this. We put a big headline on. Who do you think you're kidding? You're a scumbag." It was just unbelievable, and that's the difference between people like me and you who get up close and personal, if you'll excuse the the plug, to to people, build relationships with not just players, and not just managers, but officials around the club, uh, and from the boardroom down to the tea room. And you get your bona fide information face-to-face. And if you write the story and you stand by your story, you know the next time you go to that press conference, you know the next time you walk into that office, they're going to say, blimey, O'Reilly, he gave us some stick there. And you're going to have to face it. So for somebody in the office to to put you in a a position beyond your control and to treat you with it, I've just felt that they treated me, not just the guy in the story with contempt, I thought they treated me with contempt.
0: So, so, yeah. Yeah. Let's wind it's, back.
1: It's, to, a, it's a tough job when you're you, you, you face, up face to face with people, as me and you have done for years and years, mate.
0: Let's wind back to 2004 05. Was that the season that Chelsea won the first league title in, what, 50 years? You're
1: trying to have a dig at the mighty Chelsea?
0: You weren't so you mighty. Trying, trying,
1: I, I can feel an undercurrent in that question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Typically, bitten. But, um, but 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 yes. but Rob, you you were watching Chelsea as a young man. They yeah. were they were not a team which pushed for league titles, were they? No, you know, they, no. they were they were a cup team. Stamford Bridge. When I started going there, I liked going there, but yeah. there were two decaying terraces at either Correct. end of the goal. You had the benches on one side with a load of nutters in it and then you had yeah. the, the big um, East End. It was a very, very different club. Maybe yeah. to win the FA Cup would have been viewed as, as a success, and suddenly you've got Abramovich, you've got uh, the, Mourinho coming in, he replaced uh, Ranieri, and your team are the champions of England. What then happens with your relationship with him? Does it become closer because he's become more cemented in, in England, things are doing well? Did you start spending time with him socially?
1: Well, I started in 1967 supporting Chelsea and most of the time you support Chelsea in spite of Chelsea, in spite of the people who run it, you know, your Ken Bates and the Mears family before that, who took us to the, both took us to the brink of Armageddon. again, uh, and then you get Abramovich coming in and he's throwing all this money. I honestly never thought I'd see Chelsea win the league, it just wasn't in, in your mindset. You're a Chelsea fan, you had cup runs, you could beat the big team. we'd beat big teams every now and again. And you go, oh, blimey, we've just beaten United. Oh, blimey, we've just uh, beaten Liverpool. And then you go and lose to Luton and uh, Wimbledon and other teams who you would expect, having beaten United and Liverpool, you'd then go on and beat... But that was typical Chelsea. And uh, to some respects, we're going back that way far too fast. But, so when he won the league, it was just like... And in the centenary season, it was like, this guy is a special one. He's come in, his record at Porto was one thing, winning the Champions League with Porto. What an amazing uh, achievement. Now he's come to Chelsea. and Okay, we'd finished the season before as runners well as up to the invincibles of uh, Manchester United. So, uh, sorry, of Arsenal. Yeah. Fancy thinking Manchester United were invincibles. <laughs> Arsenal. Um, so we'd finished second to them. So we weren't far away. And then we'd also got to the semi-finals of the Champions League. Airy blew it um, with some stupid substitutions, and instead of beating Monaco and meeting Porto, we uh, we were sitting at home watching it on the telly. So we weren't far, far away. And then Josie comes in, and you think this is this is the final piece of the jigsaw. We've got a good team now. We've got a manager who can take that team to another level. Uh, and then you start thinking, wow, we're so good. Maybe we can win it next year. Maybe the Champions League's not out of reach. And of course from then on 2005 champions in our centenary year won it again the next season at Canter. um Champions League final against United, which we should have won. If it hadn't been raining in Moscow that day, John Terry would never have slipped and you would never have got out of jail. Yeah, 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 but so, put, yeah put, put, put it Rob, was glory, glory days. It was just heady days. We I'm weren't used to that. There, Rob. Yeah, you, so the feel factor was you, amazing. You I, didn't I, I, win. I, the feel factor for me was amazing. The feel factor for Jose was amazing. And it wasn't hard to get on with a guy because he, he's very approachable, away from the cameras, away from the intensity of work on the training pitch and at matches he's very relaxed he's into jolly japes and pranks and uh, he loves a bit of banter Um, and when you're on pre-season tour with him, when the pressure's off as well, you're sitting down, you're having a, a, a green tea with him, you're having a sandwich with him, you're talking football with him, you're talking movie stars with him, you're talking holidays with him, you're talking family with him. Just like a, you know, He's just one of the guys, uh, but a very, very special guy who you know is incredibly talented. And um, he, he's, he's so ordinary, in inverted commas, away from football and in real life, in a real life scenario, sitting in a hotel or walking down the street. Uh, It's sometimes as if you're with one of your big mates rather than you're with one of the greatest football managers of his generation and, and possibly of all time. So he's very, very, very easy to get on with on that personal level anyway. But when things are going particularly well, like they were for Chelsea, he's on the high as well. So he's probably even, even easier to get on with because he's at the top of his game.
0: I spoke to lots of Manchester United players from that era because after Chelsea won those first two league titles, Manchester United improved. I think, as you mentioned, Moscow, where you said if it hadn't have rained. Well, it did rain and you didn't win, <laughs> didn't win the competition. And John, John Terry, who was a childhood Manchester United fan, I'm told. Um, he saw the light. He saw the light. He saw the light. Uh, but I remember uh, Nemanja Vidic saying um, that United and Chelsea in 2007-08, they pushed each other. Without each other, it's unlikely that they would have both got to the final because... They knew that the standards, if they if they slipped, they weren't going to win the league. So you had these two teams in the same league pushing and pushing and pushing. It wasn't a coincidence that they were the best two teams in, in Europe um, that year. How did you feel in, in Moscow? And I'm not saying that in a gloating way because I spent the, the day in the Russian capital or the three or four days around it and I met a lot of really good Chelsea fans people I respected who'd followed their team for years um they were buzzing because their team had reached a a European cup final it was a it was a great game of football I'm not expecting you to say it was a a great night for you but how did you feel did you feel that um Chelsea should have should have won it that you were unlucky and did you feel that as you felt with the league, the the Premier League title, you just weren't going to win the European Cup because no London team had won it.
1: Now I, t- I agree with you about the, the the mood in Moscow was amazing. I remember being in a bar; it might have been the night before the match, and there was Manchester United fans on one side and Chelsea on the other side, and it was brilliant. Everybody was on the chairs, everybody was on the table. So Man United would sing one of their songs, and we and you'd, You'd let the United fans sing. And then when they finished, the Chelsea, we were on the table singing back at them. And then when we'd finished, they'd sing another song. And it was brilliant. The atmosphere was superb. There was no aggro or anything like that. Both two two, uh, English teams in Moscow, in the Champions League final. And everywhere I went, there was good camaraderie. We were English, we were together. Yes, we were Chelsea, we were Man United. And normally, there's a bit of angst. But on this particular occasion, whether it was because it was the Champions League final, whether it was because for Chelsea it was you know a first and a special occasion and we were all savouring the fact that we, we we were reaching these heady heights. I don't know, but it, it just seemed that the whole thing was perfect. I got to the match, I was walking down and who's outside? Mark Hughes, who played for United in Chelsea, and I knew him reasonably well, so had a good chat with him and picking his brains who we thought might win. Um, and then went to the game. And I've got to tell you, I thought Chelsea had won. Because when the penalties were taken, um, all John Terry had to do was score from twelve yards out, hit the target, and score. So I'm sitting there in the press box, and he's coming up, and I see him shape to shoot, and I see the ball go one way, and I see the keeper go the other way, and they go, set <laughs> the keeper the wrong way, and it looked like it was going in. Everybody in front of me stands up, so I don't actually see where the ball goes. And I'm thinking, we've won it with the European champions. Keeper's got the wrong way. John, T- John Terry, captain, leader, legend. Who more perfect to, to win the Champions League for Chelsea? He's done it. And then I'm sitting there going, oh, you know, the, the Chelsea fans since 96 and There's that moment of going, we have realised something amazing here. It's happened. And then suddenly there was this huge roar from the United end. And I'm going, why are they roaring? What's all that about? What's the matter with them? that's incredible and then the people in front of me sat down and I see the ball is not in the back of the net I see John Terry sitting there shaking and sobbing and I go oh my goodness gracious he missed and so for a few say 30 seconds I thought we were European champions and it was it was one of those comic moments where you went oh no we're not
0: it was incredible and all this was happening at one or two o'clock in the morning and <laughs> I think
1: another, deadline for a newspaper
0: man. <laughs> I think another reason the the fans behaved themselves so well in in Moscow was if you wouldn't have behaved, then the idea of being put into a Russian police or penitentiary system. Uh, <laughs> absolutely true. Yeah, <laughs> a good deterrent. Up. And and when did you feel that Mourinho was wanted the Manchester United job? Because I got a real sense of it in. 2013, when he came with Real Madrid, and he was very complimentary about Manchester United, despite the best, winning team, the game. The best
1: team lost. He said, after Yeah, this, he?
0: <laughs> and, and, and I also remember in 2011 being asked on television who should be Manchester United's next manager, and I said, Without any hesitation, Jose Mourinho. And then I saw him in Spain close at hand, and my opinion of him dropped significantly. Yeah, so I, I had real reservations when he was. Um, linked with the, the the Manchester United job and he's the manager now I'll support him and you know, he, he, he was definitely the choice among Manchester United fans but when do you think he wanted it and why do you think he wanted it just because it, it is you know, with respect to others I don't think I'm being arrogant in saying this it's the biggest English club
1: oh this is without a shadow of a doubt and that's what, what attracted him to it in part he um, I tell you what he'd always envied and I think "envied" envied's the right word he'd always envied so, Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger's longevity in their posts. Uh, and he's always had this hankering to have a dynasty of his own, like Fergie, like Wenger, where he, he, he rules the roost for a decade, 20 years. He builds a team, then rebuilds a team and, uh, and brings kids through. And it's his domain. That's his ideal scenario. And so he always looked from afar and, uh, and envied it. And thought, one day I'd like that. So he did his, his two years at Porto, then he came to Chelsea for three years, won six trophies in his first three years, and then when they had a dodgy start to the next season, the, the relationship with Abramovich got fractured, or even more fractured. Mm-hmm. Um, he wanted to do it his way, Abramovich thought doing it his way, and there was a parting of the ways. Then he's off to Inter, two years at Inter, then he's off to Madrid, three years, at, and then he's back at Chelsea, two years. And... All the time, he's thinking, when will I get a club where I can actually put down some roots and I can do it my way, build my club in, in my image, like Fergie has done and, and like Wenger's done? And I spoke to him numerous times about clubs and he hankered after Liverpool a little bit saying, wouldn't it be great to go back there and re-establish Liverpool as as the, the great team that they were in the, in the 90s and the last century? Wouldn't it be uh, great to go to Tottenham? think they've won the league since 1961 wouldn't it be great to get a team like tottenham and and do what i did with chelsea at at tottenham make them champions make them contenders for the champions so he was always looking at clubs like that and manchester united was always one of the teams that he had not to sort of resurrect a sleeping giant because they weren't a sleeping giant but a team of that magnitude to have that sort of curious and gravitas at a club of that of that stature so um, it was always a, a talking point on the agenda when he was going through his wish list and things that he'd like to do and things that he looked on from afar. I thought, I wish I could be like that. Uh, and then when I went out to see him, I think it was his, around the time of his 50th birthday, he was unsettled again. This would have been January, just January 2013. Yeah. So we were having a chat and he was saying, I don't like it here at Real Madrid. It's, um, I'm going to hang out till the end of the season, but I'm, I'm definitely leaving at the end of the season. Manchester City are interested. Paris Saint Germain are interested. I really want to go back to Chelsea. So that, I, I wrote the story. After a couple of weeks, I had to sit on it
0: for a couple of weeks, but in February, I got the nod to write the story. So Jose, let me say, Chelsea
1: was back by lead, world exclusive on the back of the Sun, uh, and. Uh, I kept in touch with him, any developments, any meetings, and he said, oh, Man City are coming in strong, PSG are coming in strong, Chelsea are dragging their heels a little bit. And then suddenly, I think it was around the April time, clearly Fergie was was going, and that was was known within the inner circle, the inner sanctum, and Jose knew. Uh, And uh, he says, "I I think I've got the United job, I think I've got the United job. I go, oh, God, and I'm thinking, oh, no, I've written, let me save Chelsea, he's coming back to Chelsea, and he's going to end up at United. Um... So the next thing he he knows, he's pretty sure he's already got the job. Uh, So he's rubbing his hands. He's thinking, yeah, I'm going to replace Fergie. I'm going to be the Manchester United manager. This is my chance to have my dynasty. This is my chance to build a club in my image oh, what a platform, one of the most famous, one of the most richest clubs in the world. We can dominate, you know, for, for years and years and years to come. It's going to be so exciting. And then as soon as he thought he'd got it, suddenly it's wrenched away from him. And it's it's, it's like the carrot that was dangled. And before he could, he, he looked at the carrot and went, oh my word, I can't wait to sink my teeth into that. And then as he reached for it, it's yanked away on a fishing rod. It's, oh, it's gone and it disappeared. And he was absolutely gobsmacked. He was absolutely floored by it. He went, what? What? And he's never told me the full story. He so said, One day when I finish my career and I'm not looking anymore, I'll tell you the story. So clearly, it's, it's a fairly involved and fairly seismic story. I don't know the, any of the details. I just know that he thought he'd got it and the next thing it had gone.
0: How do you think he'll do at Manchester United? And do you do, do you think that he's genuine about this idea of longevity? Because for all him wanting to build a legacy, he has also been part of the reason why it's blown up at several of his previous clubs.
1: Well, I think I think if you look at the unique circumstances where his problem with Real Madrid was that it was such a political scenario there. He said to me, it's not a football club, it's not even a sporting club, it's, there's, there's so many vested interests here, there's so much of political vested interests, the president needs to be elected, he needs to curry favour with certain people, certain people, directors, you know, people involved in the club, they've got bought players or own players or are involved with players, they want those players to play, there's all um, sorts of machinations going on behind the scenes. He, was never, he never felt in control, even of the team affairs. That he, there was always people trying to interfere or, and pressure from above to play certain people and not to drop certain people. And if he did drop them, the ramifications were huge. Mm. So he, he felt under attack on, on so many fronts there. He didn't, it, it was cramping his style, if you like, the, the style with which he wants to dominate. You can't imagine Fergie putting up with a, all that sort of in, interference. And, and Jose's very similar in many respects to Fergie. Yeah, he was... He felt his hands were tied in so many respects, and he he didn't he didn't like the the stop interference. Might be wrong, but there was always pressure from different groups to 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 play certain players and to do certain things, and he sort of railed against that as he would. It's in his nature, so he didn't really enjoy it at Chelsea. He had Abramovich, and Abramovich. There was a stupid situation at Chelsea where Jose thought it was all down to him and his coaching brilliance, that Chelsea had won back-to-back titles and six trophies in three years, and then when he comes back the second time, wins the title in his second season in the Capital One Cup. That's down to Jose's brilliant. Abramovich thinks it's down to his money and the players that he's provided. And the the two of them were like jealous of each other. Abramovich was jealous that Jose was getting all the credit. Uh, So he was saying, he'd be nothing without me. If I'd stop him buying these players he wouldn't be able to do what he's done it's all down to me all that sort of petty jealousy I think at Manchester United he's hoping that there won't be the same sort of interference there won't be the same sort of um, pressure from without Uh, he will be allowed to sort of have far more say on team matters and control over team matters who plays who's bought who's sold than he ever did at Real Madrid and uh, and Chelsea and possibly even Inter Milan so that's why it's pro- it's probably the dream scenario for him, because he thinks he will get far more freedom to be the Jose Mourinho he wants to be, and uh, and needs to be, to be you know successful over the long term, uh, than he's ever had at, uh, at any other club. That's why I think he was so keen to get into Manchester United, because he'd watch Fergie, and the way Fergie had run it like a personal fiefdom. And I'm sure that's not strictly true. I'm sure there, there were sort of uh, constraints upon him. But that was the impression from outside, looking looking in from the outside. And that was something he wanted to emulate um, to work with a board who took notice of what he wanted uh, and, and what he needed and had faith in him to, uh, to follow it through.
0: I'd love to talk for longer, Rob, but we're, we're coming out of time, running out of time now. Um, what's... Mr. Mourinho said, "Since the book has come out, I saw one quote saying uh, he's happy. You've made your money. That's fine for me. That's fine for me. Uh, has he? Has he given you any feedback to it?
1: Well I wish he had made some money. because you know, I need <laughs> as a writer, <laughs> the money's probably about six months a year away if there's any money at all. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'll be very, very happy if I make some money out of it. But the, the main thing about." doing the book was to sort of try and put the record straight a bit and, mm. and not in a, a lovey-dovey sort of uh, rose-tinted glasses way but it's 99 it's 95% positive but there is that 5% in there and to go back to the question from before which I didn't quite answer I think the parallels with what Jose did at Real Madrid are very very strong with Manchester United and Man City Pep Guardiola at City look back to Pep Guardiola at Barca anybody looking now Jose's got his work cut out to overcome Super City and Super Pep. But I just think next season, maybe not this season, but next season, he will drag Manchester United to the level where he'll do what he did with Madrid and um, he'll top the table above City and everybody else and you'll win the league next year.
0: I'm sure that will delight you, Rob. Thank you very much for, for your time.
1: Thanks, Andy. Keep the faith. Up the gels.
0: Up the Chels indeed, well I'll be bringing your podcast from Stamford Bridge in a couple of weeks time but before that there's a small matter of Liverpool away, then we've got Fenerbahce at home, we'll be bringing your podcasts from all of them, we'll also be starting work on the next United We Stand which comes out against City at Old Trafford, they've drawn in the cup. United We Stand's podcast is sponsored by BetOnBrazil.com, it's a new betting site for all sports punters with great odds, markets and offers Listeners to this podcast can now get a free £10 when they deposit £10 just by using the promo code UNITED10. Just visit betonbrazil.com and enter the promo code UNITED10. When you deposit your £10, you get £10 free. Sign up now at betonbrazil.com. Betonbrazil.com is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly.